stand, we'll face the cross, and burn. And know my father is that he is fitted with the Son. Bless us, O Lord. loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures, and still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever and in the ages of ages. Plenty of room in this room. Now, let me get on my, on my soapbox for a second. That don't tell me, but how many? When's the last time you invited somebody to come to church with you? It wasn't Catholic. Good. All right. Don't tell me. All right. It is upon our shoulders. Those who have been baptized into Christ to go out into the world and to save the world for Jesus Christ. So, uh, I'm not saying that this is church, okay? But Bible study is an important thing. And so, to, I always tell you guys to invite your friends, but it's not a matter of just getting more numbers, but it's a matter of bringing people to the faith, and that includes coming to church. So, you know, I know it's embarrassing sometimes with your whatever, what do you say to your neighbor? What do you, what do you say to the person at the grocery store? Invite them to come. What's the worst thing they can say is no? Right? Invite them to come and experience Christ and uh, read his word with us to experience him in the church. And, you know, there you go. Early church did it and they grew. Last week we finished on the seventh day. And what are we doing? We're, we're, we're gathering material, okay, gathering images as we head out of the Garden of Eden. Because as I said, salvation history is a story of God desiring to be unified with man, to share his life with man. And therefore, he doesn't change his plan. Man's the one that changes his plan, and he goes out of relationship with God and back into it every time he changes his plan. Okay, And so whenever he comes into contact with God, he comes into contact with the same mystery. And that mystery, as it is revealed to man, looks the same. We're going to see that. Okay, So we went through our Salvation History series and looked at how many hundreds of stories. Now I'm going to tell you those hundreds of stories are actually one story. And that one story is very simple, and we're going to look at it through salvation history. So when you walk out of here, at the end of, the, of, uh, of Lent, you're going to be able to say, the Bible is about this one story, and I know it, and I know it throughout the whole Bible. So in Genesis now, we've talked about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as, kind of, as a story. Now what we're doing, back in our Genesis study, now what we're doing is just gathering images to head out to examine salvation history according to that picture. Okay, The Garden of Eden is the home of God and man dwelling together. So we got to know what that home looks like if when we come back into it, so that when we come back into it, we'll recognize it again. Unfortunately, one of the saddest things is that most Christians today don't ever know, didn't ever know what the Garden of Eden looked like. So when Christ comes, they don't know what they're looking at. And for some reason, by the grace of God, they're still Christians today. Okay? If I didn't recognize my home when I walked into it, I wouldn't have any interest in going there. Okay? 
And so, anyways, that's what we're talking about. Our image that we kind of came to a, the uh, head with last time at the end was the seventh day and the importance of the seventh day. The one thing we need to remember about the seventh day is that idea of covenant union with God. It's on that seventh day that man is called to communicate with God. God shares his life with man. And man gives himself to God. The seventh day, as I said, in its very, in its very wordiness, the number seven in Hebrew points to that idea of covenant. Okay? The seventh day is our day of communication to rest with God forever. That's the way he planned it in the beginning. Okay? That resting with God is, a, is the story of man in a sense, talking with God. When we talk with each other a lot, what happens to us? We end up talking like the other person. If I'm talking with my friend all the time, I know I've said this to you guys a lot of times, but I end up, with my best friend always having a conversation, I end up being transformed into that person. They're transformed into who I am. Okay? Even more so with the power of God, when we come into contact with Him and we enter into that conversation with Him, we're transformed into him. And that was God's plan in the beginning for man on the seventh day. Okay? We also talked about the images used throughout the Bible for creation. And what image, primarily, what's the image used for God's creation in the beginning as we look at it in Job and in the Psalms and other places? Do you remember? Like a builder. Yeah, like a builder. And the Jews were accustomed to see in God's creation the building of the cosmic temple. Okay? The dwelling place for God and man. The home of God. Scott Hahn says uh, in his book, uh, The Father Who Keeps His Promises, it's a good book, I recommend it. The ancient Israelites, in reading the account of creation, would have naturally read as the primary sense or literal meaning of the creation account God's erection and dedication of a cosmic temple for his royal priestly people. As we will see, this interpretation of creation is a macro temple in chapter 1, sets the stage for the Garden of Eden in chapter 2, as the sanctuary in which Adam is called to serve and minister as the high priest of humanity. Okay? We have our seven days of creation culminating in that covenant day. And suddenly, the text changed. Let's take a look at that real quick. Turn to chapter 2 of Genesis. We're going to go 15 minutes over because I made all those announcements. <laughs> so if you have to leave, then we'll get to I just got there. one. Do have any? No. If you don't have a Bible, look on with your friends, bring a Bible next time. Make sure you bring a Bible when you come to Bible study. Alright. Chapter 2. Again, get rid of the chapter break. Okay, it's a, that's, This is one of the worst places in the entire Bible to have a chapter break. Look at verse 31 of chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning a sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work. And he got to the culmination of the story, and there's a chapter break. Okay? So, uh, verse 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. 
if they want to put a chapter break here, it would be the point of place. Two verse four. I'm gonna have like Vanna White up here. Anybody want to write up our stuff for us? No. We could. No. All right. Chapter two, verse four. These are these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet on the earth and no herb in the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused no uh, rain to fall upon the earth, and there was no and so on and so on. So you get the second creation story following upon the seventh day, and it's an interesting thing that we get to that seventh day and suddenly the text changes. Suddenly the text changes. Why is that? The seventh day acts for us as kind of like a hinge in the story of the two creation accounts. We've read the story of creation in kind of a, um, I don't want to say dislocated, but a, a manner far off, seen it from far. And then the seventh day tells us what those, seven, those six days of creation were all about. The seventh day makes intelligible what God's doing on the first six days. So it's not until the seventh day that we really know what creation is made for. And so Moses, traditionally Moses wrote this text, Moses starts the story over again. Now not from afar, but close up within the covenant of God, within light, in light of the seventh, seventh day. Now to tell the story of creation from the viewpoint of the covenant. Does that make sense? Okay. Some scholars tell us, well, the second creation account is just another story, another myth that the Jews had. It's not the case at all. Okay. Do any of you know why there would be two accounts? Why would we tell a story twice? Why? Different sources. What's that? Different sources. You could have different sources, but by tradition, Moses wrote both of these texts. Alright, you could fill in the details. That's one reason. Why else? Emphasis. Yeah, what do you mean? Just making the same point, reiterating it to drill it all. Alright, but not just the same point. You get it from two different sides. Yeah, a new perspective. Okay, that oftentimes in the scriptures we get a story told twice, a repetition. Not because uh, you know the Jews were too stupid and couldn't figure out which story to put in their book. Okay, and they had to jam the two of them together, but because now, in light of the covenant, the story of creation needs to be told again. Okay, and it's in the second creation account that we get the story of the Garden of Eden. Okay, and the Garden of Eden is that place where God and man can dwell together in peace. I asked you last time, well, yeah, I asked you last time before you left to read over chapter 2 and write down all the images you get. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. All the images. Did anyone do that? No. I teach, you know, I teach the missionaries of charity and they all listen to me. They're very obedient. I made them memorize the, first, the prologue of John. They have to stand up at the beginning of the class and recite it. Oh, yeah. And they don't even know English very well. They have vows of obedience. They have vows of obedience, they do. Alright. So, so, so in my Catholic study Bible, then, when they talk about the priestly source and the Deuteronomy source and the Yahweh source and the Yahweh different sources, and they say when it was. When they were written in Judah, probably Jerusalem under King Solomon, and yeah. different time periods, different traditions. Yeah, I'll, I, I, we don't have time to get into it too much. We could maybe we'll have a class just on that because that's 
modern biblical scholarship, and unfortunately modern biblical scholarship for the most part rejects the idea that this book is divinely inspired. Okay, And so these different sources that they're talking of, about are different time periods in the history of Israel where they wrote the text down. And then later on, a group of people or a number of different people along the way put it all together and mixed it all up, jumbled like putting a blender, and then put it all out as a Bible. Okay, And so you have the priestly source, the Yahweh source, and so on. Okay, all these different sources from different time periods. It also says it's all divinely inspired, so they don't say that it's not divine. Okay, well, okay. Well, we can get to that another time. That gets a little bit far out. We don't need to deal with that today. For us, we believe this is the word of God. Okay, and the tradition tells us. In fact, our Lord tells us that Moses wrote it down. Okay, and so we'll put our hands ourselves at the feet of tradition for now, because I'll tell you what. Even if that were right, even if every modern biblical scholar were right, and and ultimately none of it really, John never wrote his gospel, Matthew never wrote his gospel, all this stuff. Even so, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, Jesus and the apostles thought it was. And for us, our goal is to look through the eyes of Christ, to see the Old Testament, so that we can properly read who Christ is. Okay? So, anyways, um, where was I? Images. Give me some images in chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Images. Things that are in there. What we got to look for. How do we recognize our home? Come on. Quick. Genealogy. What's that? A stream scrolled up into the garden. Okay, there's a river of life. Okay, give me chapter and verse if you don't look at it. They're like, where was that? Six. Chapter 2. Six. Verse 6. 6. Ten. Verse 10. It says six. six. Oh, you're right, you're right. And then, uh, and then later on, verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden. Okay, so these different lands split up into four different lands. Okay, what else? Tree. Tree. Uh, tree of what? Life. Tree of life. And the tree of Okay, what else? What other kind of tree do we know is there? Maybe one of these trees. What kind of fruit tree do we know is in the garden? A fig. No, not an apple. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the word there for fruit tree, in, when it's translated into Latin, is a word very similar to the word in Latin for apple. And so that's how we got that thing that they ate of the apple tree. And there's nothing in the Bible about the apple tree. So, all right, there's a fig tree. Good. There's slime of the earth. That's all right, slime. Thing. That's a little bit wild. Slime of the earth. That's, that's like a real serious image. What that slime would come All right, fine. We'll put the slime down. <laughs> What's that? A garden. All right, good. A garden. Okay. What else? Gold. Gold. Where do you see gold? Uh, 2.12. 2.12, right? Why? But what is it? Rivers. Is it in the garden? No. Of what land? The rivers rise and break into four. The rivers go out into these lands, and what are found there in the lands? Gold, bdellium, onyx stone. What else? There's all these jewels found in the lands that the rivers flow out to. So what do they say about the lands from which those rivers flow? 
It's rich. Yeah, why? Because oftentimes jewels and, and gold itself is known to flow through these rivers, right? And so where the deposit is, you follow that river back to its source and you're going to find out where the real action is, right? And so those jewels are things to remember. In fact, the church fathers and the, and the Jews said that the garden of paradise, the ground of the garden was covered in precious stones. When Adam walked on the ground of the garden, he walked upon gold and onyx stone and bedell sapphire, all of these jewels sparkling on the ground. Okay? So there's jewels. Okay. You remember two of those jewels, bedellium and onyx stone. A little side notes. In, our, in the Melkite church, when uh, there's a crowning service for the wedding, the, two, the, the, the man and woman are crowned. And then we sing from the, uh, from the Psalms, you have crowned them with precious stones. And so my wife and I, or my brother, went, we were out in California, he went to a rock guy out in California, and he took out his Bible and found all the lists in the book of Revelation. we'll get to it, all these lists of the jewels that were in the Garden of Eden. And he went to the guy and says, I need these rocks. So he looked through this whole thing, and he found all the rocks, and he brought them back to me, and then we hooked them to this crown, and then we wove this white thing around it. Oh, it's beautiful, and the flowers and everything, and so we were really crowned with precious stones. Anyways, that's cool. Um, all right, onyx stone, vanilla, number two, four months, gold, yes. Okay, what else? What else is in there? The breath of life. What's the breath of life? The spirit of God. If you remember, I said last time in Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. It can be translated as wind. What else? Breath. Breath. What else? Spirit. spirit. Sorry, my handwriting is so bad. Um, and so, yeah, the spirit of God is there. And remember, the image of it hovering over the waters. It's also the spirit of God is blown into the, into the nostrils of man to give him life. Okay, what else? Well, the animals and birds. Animals and birds, fine. Oh, that's a cute thing. Animals and birds, I like that. I'm work on that. Okay, I don't have that in my list. Okay, what else? Sea monsters. The sea, all right, oh, animals, fine, okay, fish, okay. What else? The rib. They, they were two for Adam to pick out a form that he liked, and he didn't like any of those. So God. Okay, so there's there's man and woman, right? Man and woman. What what about who else is the dweller of paradise? How about the soul? How about God? God walks in the garden, right? In the cool of the day. Okay, what else? Can you say the soul? The soul, the soul of man. All right, but we got the breath of God's spirit. In fact, that spirit, that breath, is said to be in in the Hebrew uh, the soul of man. Okay, it's his life force. It's the okay. So yeah, this concept. What else? Oh, the serpent. Okay, fine. Well, what else? Keep going. But why would we recognize the serpent in the home we want to go to? <laughs> oh, because I'll, what I'm saying is that there, he sure is in the story. So if we go back, we've got to have all these images. We're going to talk about the serpent and the animals and things too in a second. But just, we've got to get all the images down. Okay, let me read you a quote by, uh, by a, a Protestant scholar with a great insight on this. He says, David Shelton, he says, One of the most important discoveries that can be made 
he says, by any Bible teacher, when I say by anyone studying the Bible, is an understanding of the basic imagery laid down in the early chapters of Genesis. He says, the most important discovery you can make is get these images down if you want to read the Bible. And what does he say? Light and darkness, water and land, sky and clouds, mountains and gardens, beasts and dragons, gold and jewels, trees and thorns, cherubs and flaming swords, all of which form a grand and glorious story, a true fairy tale. Okay? We've got to get these images down. Why does he say a mountain? Why do you think he says a mountain? The image of a mountain. What do you see a mountain in, in the Garden of Eden? Well, it's the, I guess, the garden was on a mountain. Why? Well, I don't know. What was that? Nothing. There weren't any other mountains. What was that? Tell me. Yeah. Yeah, a river flows out of it. A river flows out of things that are like a mountain, okay? Yeah. Okay, it flows out and into these lands so that we can say that the Garden of Eden maybe is a mountain. Okay? We're going to test these things later, but it's a possibility. What else? What about the garment that Adam wore before and after the fall? What does God clothe Adam with after the fall? Leaves. You know, he clothed himself with leaves. Animal skins, right? And so the church fathers say that before the fall, Adam was clothed in the grace of God. And when he fell, he cast off his robe of sonship, the robe of grace. And he found himself naked. And so being now in the state of an animal, without reason, casting forth his reason when he fell, God clothed him in animal skin, so now he was not in the image of God anymore, but in the image of the animals. Okay? So remember that robe of glory that Adam had before the fall. Okay, what else? Clay. All right, clay or soil, the land. Okay, I think this is that's probably good enough. Does anyone have their thing from last week, attending uh, God's garden? Can I have one? Just hand me that whole staff in case anybody needs them. Just pass them. Does anybody need them? Need one? Okay, there you go. Pass them around. Anybody else need one? Pass them back. Don't start reading yet. Mine is one over there. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you guys are here. Oh, yeah, no, All right, we're good to go. If you don't have one, look on with your neighbor. We're just going to read the first paragraph. Don't start reading yet. We're going to read the first paragraph together. We're going to stop. You're going to stop reading. Okay, you promise? You don't have to read any further. We'll get it out later and read the rest of it. Okay. Oh, you already read it at home? That's all right. In the beginning, God planted a garden of paradise. The divine gardener arranged his paradise in good order. Ah, look at that. God was a gardener, right? Because he planted the garden of Eden. And man's made in his image and likeness. And therefore, man is made to till and keep the garden. Man is made to be a gardener in the beginning. With his own hands, he planted a hedgerow around it, and without tilling its virgin earth or digging furrows, he planted vineyards, fruit trees, the green herbs, and all kinds of vegetation to delight the eye. He channeled a river into the garden, that it might always have living water, and provided that the garden would always have enough sun and fair weather. Then in the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of life. Everything was organized around the tree of life, and the tree of life was the source of life. 
There he introduced the beasts of the earth, water and sky. And when the gardener saw that all of this was good, he knew that it was a fitting home for the one whom he had made very good. And so the Lord God put man into the garden, but this, this only on the condition that he would dress and keep the garden. The divine gardener walked with man in the garden and taught him to tend it well. But man, i.e. man and woman, the first family, dressed and kept the garden badly. Man and woman reaped where they did not sow and sowed the seeds of death. And so the Lord God cast them from their home and placed a cherubim with flaming sword before the garden of paradise to keep the way to the tree of life, lest perhaps they should put forth their hand and eat of its fruit and live forever. Okay, close it up. All right, we missed one key image here. What is it? What's that? Okay, we'll talk about that hedge in a second. A hedge. Why do you say a hedge row? Why do you say there's a hedge around the garden? We'll get to that in a second. What else? All right. What else? Yeah, the angel with the flaming sword guarding the way into paradise at the gate. If we're going to go back into paradise, we better go by that angel. Because he's not going anywhere. God placed him to guard the entrance. Okay? So we keep that in mind as one of our images that we have to meet. Now, he says that in the middle of the garden, God planted what? The tree of life. Okay? And there's two main trees that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? One of them is the tree of life. The other is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to give you a little insight that St. Ephraim the Syrian says, and I've told you St. Ephraim before, doctor of the church because of his insights in scripture. Okay, the 5th century deacon of the church of, uh, of Syria. Okay? In Antioch. Uh, or Antioch in Syria. And he says that paradise was organized around the tree of life, like this priest says. Okay? He says the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. In the midst of the garden. In fact, that's what the scriptures say. And around the tree of life was a hedge. Okay? And that hedge acted almost like a gateway to guard the way in. Okay? And that hedge or that gateway was the tree of knowledge. And the only way to the tree of life was by or past the tree of knowledge. God did not make man or did not make the tree of knowledge evil in order to trick man. In fact, the scriptures say what? And God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Not, I'm going to kill you. Okay, we've some of we've talked about this before. It's not, it's not like God saying, uh, you know, enticing man and saying, ah, let's see if he can beat it. No, he's like, like a father or a mother saying, don't touch this stove. Okay, because when you do, you're going to get burned. Not because the father or mother doesn't want them to be able to touch the stove, but not until they can do it properly. And in obedience to what the parents say. And only then can they go and get what's in the stove. And what's in the stove is actually made for them, right? The cookies or whatever it is, okay? Uh, and St. Ephraim says something further. He says, and there's an, even a further outer edge to the garden. Only and the animals were allowed to come in here, okay? And Adam and Eve dwelt in this middle part. But they were called to come to the tree of life. Because at the tree of life... Man would eat, and what would happen to him? He would live forever. And whose life is forever? Whose life is eternal? God's life. Aha, okay. there was only one opening. Okay. 
Okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> this was like uh, Harlem sometimes. Okay, anyway. The tree of life is in the middle because it was the central place where God would communicate his own life to man. Through eating of the tree of life, man would come to be united with God. Man would share in the life of God himself. Okay? And around that tree of life was the glory cloud of God. Because wherever God appears in the Old Testament, the glory cloud of God appears. Okay? And Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree of knowledge. So that through obedience to that command, that God would recognize that man and woman were ready, in obedience, to eat of the tree of knowledge and to receive that which was waiting for them in the center of the garden, in the Holy of Holies, the central place, namely the life of God itself. Okay? You say, well, what is the tree of knowledge? What was it all about? The church fathers are pretty consistent. That it has nothing to do with what we commonly think, that before they ate of the tree of knowledge, they didn't know anything. Because if they didn't know anything, they couldn't judge anything. And therefore, Eve could never have judged whether the serpent's words were true or not. Okay? And so the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was something much more than a knowledge as we normally know it. But in the Hebrew sense of knowledge, is an experiential knowledge. Okay? Oftentimes we talk about carnal knowledge. Okay? Sexual union. It's experiential. Okay? So that when man ate of the tree of knowledge in obedience, he would have experienced the good that was awaiting him. But if he ate it in disobedience, he would be cast forth from that which God had prepared for him. Okay? And so at the moment of eating of the tree of knowledge in disobedience, St. Ephraim says, the veil was lifted from their eyes, and the glory cloud lifted, and Adam and Eve saw what God had planned for them from all eternity. And yet at that moment, they were cast out into the outer darkness knowing what they had lost by their disobedience. Yeah. Um, I understand the imagery. I'm not sure I understand the theology quite yet. Um, from all I have read is that when Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God, they were given the gift of eternal life already and they didn't lose it until they ate of the tree of um, knowledge. Um, so was the tree of life then something, sort of a prefigurement of the Eucharist, is that you eat of the fruit always to preserve? Well, we'll get to that. I'm, I'm not we don't want to jump to forward just because oh. our, 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 we've got a whole progression we've got to go through. Okay. But as far as what they had before the fall, the text isn't super clear. What we do know is they're made in the image and likeness of God, and yet they're called to live out that life and through living out that life of obedience to God and sacrifice to God, they would be called into even a further covenant. And that covenant would be that covenant of the seventh day. Okay? And so it's in chapter 2 now that we examine more fully the creation account in light of that covenant union. Okay? In light of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Okay. We're going to come back to this because you might be saying, ah, that's a little wild. St. Ephraim, he's a little on edge there. 
Okay? And I'm going to tell you it's not, but I don't, I'm not going to give it to you yet. So I'm going to ask you to trust me. Keep this image in mind, and we're going to come back to it. Why he says that. Yeah. The other day, I was uh, looked at the catechism of what they have to say about eternal life. Mm -hmm. and they mentioned the judgments. They did. They mentioned something very similar that at death, that people will get a glimpse of what God has prepared for them, even if they're sent to the other place. Yeah, the devils know, in some sense, know what they missed. Now they won't have no glimpse. Yes, they won't have what the saved have. But there's some sort of a reality. They know what they've lost. Yeah. Okay. Uh, chapter 2 continues. We know the basic story of it and culminates again as chapter 1 culminated with the story of what? The creation of who? Yeah, well, we have Adam already being created and then finding the culmination is the, is the, is, uh, the creation of the... Did I just lose something? No, I thought something fell. Look at chapter 2, verse um, 23, or 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place of the flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother, and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, in the uh, time order of chapter 1, the development of the story of chapter 1, where are we at? What day? What's created? Yeah, the sixth day. Finally, woman comes into existence. Okay? By the way, St. Ephraim says that when, when Adam was, that sleep was cast upon him, it wasn't sleep like we know it, where we don't know what's going on but that he entered into the presence of God and he saw more fully what he never would have seen while he was asleep, in our sense. And so his, eyes, his spiritual eyes were open and he saw the woman take the rib taken forth from his side. He saw her created and therefore he wakes up and what does he say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Okay? So on the sixth day, and then man is created the end of the sixth day and what comes next? Rest. The seventh day rest, the covenant rest, where man and God are called to communicate, and man and woman are called to enter into that marriage covenant, and everything is happy for all eternity, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say to you, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Okay? Right at the moment when you would expect a covenant union between man and God to take place and between man and the woman to take place, a communication between the parties involved, who is the one that has a communication? Even the serpent. Okay? And at that pinnacle, when you would expect the covenant relationship to be consummated, you have the consummation of another covenant. An illicit covenant. Okay? Right there at the moment of the covenant, I would say, we have our first divorce. Scott Hahn says, There's no reason to suppose that Adam lived a long time as a bachelor. In terms of the narrative time, his second day began when he awoke from his deep sleep, which also happened to be the Sabbath day sanctified by God. Okay? Does that make sense? 
St. John Chrysostom says there's no excuse to the woman to be speaking with the serpent in the first place. Rather, she should have been conversing with the one for whom she had been made and with whom she shared everything on equal terms and whose helpmate she had been made. Okay? Now, there's a further distinction there, though. The serpent is talking. Now, she, she and Adam had the ability to communicate with the animals. There's a difference here because the serpent is speaking. How did he come to speak? That's what catches her. I mean, the fact that she would even think of, of speaking to some something that was actually not communicating as an animal is already a problem. Okay, I'll answer that just real quick because we've got to move on. And this is what I would say. The devil has many masks. And when the devil wants to scare you, he will scare you. And when he wants to entice you, he will entice you. When he wants to appear as a, as a dragon, he will appear as a dragon. And when he wants to appear as an innocent animal, he will appear as an innocent animal. Okay? And so how the, how the serpent appeared to Eve, we don't really know exactly. How he appeared to Adam, we don't really know. Okay? But we could, in a sense, you know, guess that he wouldn't, he's not stupid. And he's going to mask himself in order to get his way. So okay. why did God say, Eve, don't do it? Just like a parent would say, Stop, Why didn't Adam say, Eve, do don't do it? That's <laughs> right. Okay. All right. We're going to leave this behind because we get stuck in it. But here's what we need to know from the fall. That there is an illicit communication. Okay? That a communion between two parties takes place. And instead of being remade in the image of God, man is remade in the image of the serpent. Okay? If there's going to be a restoration, we must have a restoration of that communication with God. And in that communication with God, man will be restored to his original likeness. Okay? Um, why were they cast out of the Garden of Eden? Last thing we're going to say. Why were they cast out of the Garden of Eden, Nanny? Exactly. Because if they'd eaten from the tree of life in the fallen state, what would have happened? Live for exactly. Saint Ephraim says if they'd eaten of the tree of life in that state, they would have lived forever as though buried alive. And so God in his mercy cast them out of the Garden of Eden, away from the tree of life, their source of life, their communication with him, for one reason so that they can come back to him someday in obedience to receive all of the blessings that he had prepared for them from the beginning. Okay? And he places at the edge of the Garden of Eden what thing? Cherubim. The cherubim. To guard the way to that tree of life. Okay? Does that make sense? We're good. Thank God we're out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> that took about an hour longer to show up. Alright. If you were cast out of your father's home, where would you go? If you knew you had done something terribly wrong and everything good was within your father's home, where would you go? My mother. <laughs> That's a good point. And your mother is in your father's home, so what are you going to do? Grandma to grandpa. What are you going to do? Would you wander? Yeah. If, if you knew what you had done was wrong and everything was, your salvation was inside that house and you knew it, you wouldn't go wandering, ah, right, I blew it, forget it, I'm out here. No, not at all. The, the Jews believed that Adam continued to dwell on the edge of paradise, waiting for the moment when God would allow him to re enter. Okay? 
all of salvation history, that whole long seven-part series we did, is the story of God and the dwelling place of God and man. And man by being cast forth from the, from the dwelling place of God and called back. And so you have Adam and Eve cast out. Who's called back? Abraham. Abraham's called back. Who's cast out? Joseph. What's that? Joseph. Well, Joseph and who? The 12 brothers, Abraham. right? Into slavery, into Egypt. Okay? Moses. And they're called back with who? Moses. Moses. And then again, they're cast out when? Uh, That's a bad Babylonian word. exile. That's right. And a remnant returns. Okay? That's the story of salvation history. I'm going to add something to that, to the sight of God and the dwelling of God in a few minutes here. Okay? Whenever we see that coming back into the place of God, we ought to see the restoration of the dwelling place of God, the house of God. So for the next 10 minutes, we're going to look at the first one. And don't worry, we're on track here. So we're going to look at the first one. Who's our first major figure outside of the Garden of Eden? Major figure? Noah. Noah. Okay? So let's take a look at the story of Noah really quick. Okay? Turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 38. Don't read it yet. Chapter 5, there's no verse 38. We can't read it anyway. Don't tell him, Mon. Mon's been reading Genesis. She never read with us the rest of the whole thing. She just kept reading Genesis. Where are you at now, Mon? Middle of Exodus, right? Middle of Exodus, she got bogged down. She hit the concrete wall and died. All right. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground which the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. When did God curse the ground? After the fall. Yeah, that was one of the curses. That the ground would bring forth what? Thorns and thistles. Okay? And so this idea that through Noah, somehow the curse will be lifted. Okay, that's our first indication that something's going on here. Chapter 6, uh, verse 9. No, chapter 6, yes, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Who else walked with God or didn't walk with God? Adam. Adam, right? God walks in the garden, and instead of walking with God, what does Adam do? <laughs> yeah, he hides. He hides from God. And so Noah becomes this image of the reversal of Adam's fall. He walks with God. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. What's that sound like? What phrase back in Genesis that was repeated over and over again? That it was good. God saw that it was good. And what did he do? He blessed it. Okay? Now God sees that it is corrupt and he condemns it. Okay? The flood becomes the beginning of the story of the flood, becomes for us a decreation. Okay? A decreation. 
And the second half of the story is a recreation. Let's just look at a couple things really quick for us. You remember the importance of the number seven. Okay, what does it represent? Covenant. Covenant. And it's because of the covenant that it's perfect. Okay, the covenant. Chapter 7, Annie, go ahead and read for us. Real quick, just hit those first things. As soon as you get it, move on. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For you alone in this age have I found to be truly just. Of every clean animal, take with you seven pairs, a male and its mate. Verse 3. Likewise, of every clean bird of the air, seven pairs, a male and female. Verse 4. Seven days from now I will bring rain down on the earth. Verse 10. As soon as the seven days were over, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Chapter 8, verse 4. That in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the verse ark Verse 10. <laughs> he waited seven days more and again sent the dove out from the ark. Verse 12. He waited still another seven days. Okay, you guys get the point? <laughs> Throughout the whole story of the flood, the number seven is repeated over and over again. And we don't want to read the number seven. You read the word covenant over and over and over again. This story is about the covenant. It's about the breaking of the covenant and the restoration of the covenant. Whoa. <laughs> better music. <laughs> All right. Is there any symbolism that Noah's father lived in the 777? It's possible, yeah. And, and in fact, just a little side note, Noah's grandfather dies in the year of the flood, and the flood happens in the first, in the first month. So most likely, Noah's grandfather died in the flood. And you can imagine, when we have this idea of the flood, you know they're all happy going in the ark. What would you have done if the waters were coming up and that ark was the last thing above ground? The whole earth would have been banging and scratching and screaming at the edges of the ark. It would have been horrific what was taking place. And Noah in faith had to say, no, I'm obedient to God. So all of that was in that... Um Ark was Noah and his family and then the, the beasts. The Noah and his three sons, so what are their names? Sam, Ham, and Japheth. Good. So and the three wives. Noah's wife, that's eight in all. So then, and then the whole earth was completely annihilated. And okay, all, yeah. so then we're, we're, so actually all our sins are from Noah and, and his family. Yes, yes. All right, let's move on. Not only that, the word covenant is mentioned, we're going to look at it, guess how many times? Seven. Seven times in the story. You think it's accidental? I don't think so. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. Go ahead, Annie. So the Lord said, I will wipe out from the earth the men whom I have created, and not only the men, but also the beasts, and the creeping things, and the birds of the air. For I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Okay, and so on. And so you get in the flood, everything God had created is now going to be wiped out. Decreated, if you will. Chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued upon the earth for 40 days. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark so that it rose above the earth. The swelling waters increased greatly, but the ark floated on the surface of the water. 
Higher and higher above the earth rose the waters, until all the highest mountains everywhere were submerged. Okay, what's that sound like? You've got all the mountains that are here, and you've got water over the top of it. Now, before creation, right, water covered the face of the earth. Okay, keep going, Amy. There's no, nothing to assume that there were mountains at that point. Here? No. There's nothing in, in, in Genesis for, for you to assume that there were mountains on the earth before the flood. Actually, a river flows out of the end, so there's got to be some sort of hills. Okay, but anyways, that's, that's not dealing with our text at the end, so let's deal with our text at the end. Right. Okay. So waters come up above the earth. Okay, go ahead, Andy. Higher and higher above the earth rose the waters until all the highest mountains everywhere were submerged. The crest risen, rising 15 cubits higher than the submerged mountains. All creatures that stirred on earth perished. Birds, cattle, wild animals, and all that swarmed on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything on dry land with the faintest breath of life in its nostrils died out. The Lord wiped out every living thing on earth, man and cattle, the creeping things and the birds of the air. All were wiped out from the earth. Okay, I missed one verse I wanted you guys to look at, and that's verse 11. In the 600th year, we're in chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. What are the, what's the great deep? The sea. The sea. Okay, so you got the sea. And the fountains, whatever that means, somehow break forth. Whatever it means. And you got the heavens. And the heavens break forth. What happened on day two of Genesis, of creation? It was a dome. What did God do? He separated, he separated the waters from the waters. And so here in the flood, the waters come back together. And in fact, you can imagine in the flood, the torrent of water. You guys are trying to drive, right? When there's a torrent of water coming down, this is a torrent like we've never seen. Okay? And so literally, the waters come back together. Okay? Further, what happens when the rain is that heavy? What happens to the sun? It's blotted out, and you have darkness. Okay? So as waters come back together, the darkness prevails upon the earth. All living things are wiped out. Now, there was no rain also before this rain, because it says that in Genesis that there was no rain before the flood. Okay. We're going to see how sin enters in just a second. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. Go ahead, Annie. And then God remembered Noah and all the animals, wild and tame. Now, God remembered? What do you mean God remembered? God forgot? You think God forgot Noah? No. No. In Hebrew, it's a Hebrew idiom. When it says, when the text says God remembers, it says all through the Bible. It means God's about to recall his covenant union. He's about to act decisively in the story of man. To bring about his covenant again. That covenant with, which man has broken. He's going to restore. Okay? To remember is to make present again. Okay? So God remembered Noah. Keep going. So God made a wind sweep over the earth, and the waters began to subside. Okay. What hovered over the waters of creation? Spirit. Spirit. We say three things, right? Because the Hebrew word is the same. The spirit, the wind, the breath. 
okay? And some of your texts re- um, uh, make mention of that. St. Ambrose says, There is no doubt that the flood subsided by the invisible power of the Spirit, not by wind as such, but by divine intervention, that the wind, the Spirit of God, parted the waters as it did at creation, and dry land came forth again. Okay? Keep going, Annie. Actually, let's skip verse 14, because otherwise we have way over time. Verse 14 through 17. Stop at verse 17. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, together with your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all bodily creatures, be they birds or animals or creeping things on the earth, and let them abound on the earth, breeding and multiplying on them. What did you say? What bird can you using? Okay, let me read it for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Verse 17. Brings forth with you every living creature that is with you, and all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may, have, may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Where do we recall that? Yes. The, at the creation of man and animals. Okay, on day six. Keep reading, Annie. Sorry. Mark, you want to read that for us? Go. We'll switch people. Sorry. So Noah came out together with his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. And all the animals, wild and tame, all the birds and all the creeping creatures of the earth left the ark, one kind after another. And Noah built an altar to the Lord. And choosing from every clean animal and every clean bird, he offered holocaust on the altar. When the Lord smelled and the sweet odor, he said to himself, Never again will I doom the earth because of man since the desires of man's heart are evil from the start. Nor will I ever again strike down all living beings as I have done. As long as the earth lasts, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Did you read verse 21? I'm sorry. I'll read it. Sorry. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Is that what he said? Yes. To curse the ground. So that, again, Noah, his, his uh, father had prophesied that Noah would reverse the curse of Adam, the cursing of the ground. And here God reverses the curse, okay? So we get at first this decreation, this opposite of creation takes place. And then God remembers his covenant, and the dry ground appears. The Spirit of God parts the waters. Man comes forth and stands upon the ground to sacrifice to God again. And the curse is reversed of the fall, okay? Uh, verse nine, uh, Chapter 9, verse 1, Mark. What does that mean today, though, when the curse is reversed? That he lifted that curse. That now, after Noah, that uh, again, fruits and vegetables and good things from the earth can come forth. Because the curse was that thorns and thistles would come forth, and by the, the sweat of man's brow, that he would eat his bread. But we still have to okay. be by We do, and so there's a beginning of a reversal of the curse. The flood is only the first, the beginning of our restoration, and this restoration will take all of salvation history. Okay, so we're beginning to get just inklings, okay, little images of the reversal of what happened in the fall. A recreation and a new man in the person of Noah. Okay, chapter 9, verse 1, Mark. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. Dread fear of you shall come upon all the animals of the earth okay. and all the birds. All right. So he says, be fruitful and multiply again. What happens in, in chapter 1 of Genesis after God says, be fruitful and multiply? Fruitful. 
What's he say? Be fruitful and multiply and what? And have dominion over the creatures, right? And what follows upon God's command of man to have dominion? You remember? Thou shalt not be a vegetarian. <laughs> no, thou shalt be a vegetarian. Go back there real quick. Keep your hand in Genesis chapter 9 if you still have it. Okay? Because we're almost out of time, and we are out of time. So verse chapter 1, verse 28. We're in Genesis. We're not getting out of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. So you have the fruitful multiply. You have dominion over the creatures, and then you have the instruction of the deep. All the, all the good fruit and vegetables of the land. Okay? Turn back then to chapter 9, verse 1. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing... Stop. Don't keep reading. The dominion is not restored to man. The dominion wasn't lost at the fall. Noah was able to bring all the animals to the ark willingly. But after the flood... At the fall, sorry, at the flood, he was able to bring them all to the ark willingly. But after the flood, something changes. Okay? And so we see a recreation, a new man, and yet even then, something is lost. Because man again has fallen into sin. Okay? And so right where we had dominion in Genesis, we have the loss of that dominion here. Verse 2. For the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish that see into your hand, they are delivered. What's next? What you're allowed to eat, Genesis. Every moving thing that lives upon you shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its, with its life, that is its blood. Okay? So why are the animals now in fear of man? Because the animals have now become his food. Okay. Let's just look at one, one, or real quick, two things. Um, no, one thing. Chapter nine, verse twenty. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. Now, who was supposed to till the soil in the beginning? Adam. Adam. So here in Noah, that idea of the gardener is restored, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine. He eats of the fruit of the garden in which he was a gardener, and he became drunk. And when he ate of the fruit, he fell into sin. And what happens? He lays naked in his tent. His son Ham sees him. Okay? And as a result of that, and the son Canaan sees him, and as a result of that, his sin redounds upon his children. Okay? And Ham and Canaan end up becoming cursed because of the sin of, Ad, uh, the sin of Noah. What was his the sin? What was his sin? It's yeah, he says, And he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the, fa uh, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay, so he goes in. We won't get into what it was. If you missed out on that last time, 
uh, you missed out on, on some good stuff. But not last time, but our other series. We'll go back to this 100,000 times, so don't worry. Okay? All right. Um, we're finished with uh, the flood. What I'm going to do is take a uh, one-minute break, and if you guys have any questions, I will answer them for a total of three minutes after that one-minute break. Okay, I've got a couple questions. First, why is it there's seven clean animals, seven pairs of clean, two pairs of dirty animals, and yeah, yeah. four pairs of humans? How does that fit? Four pairs of humans. Okay, well, let's find out why. Okay. Um, no, it's all right here. Uh, chapter uh, 8, chapter 7. Verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air, also male and female, to keep their kind alive upon the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and ever that is so on. Okay, now look at... Uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Uh, I'm doing this off the cuff, so verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And there it is. Okay? So the clean animals, the seven pairs of clean animals are for the sacrifice. So we take just loads of animals for the sacrifice. And then the, the extra pair, the unclean, are allowed to propagate upon the earth, fill the earth. Okay? Somebody else? Yes? Okay, okay. going back to this puzzle of men's stuff, it said Noah was a husbandman after the flood. And I asked if he was before. Now it says Cain, the firstborn, was a husbandman, and he offered the first fruits of the earth. Mm -hmm. And of course, his sacrifice was not acceptable, da, da, da. but what kind of, I mean, what image do we have there with the first son with, let's say, the first two sons. I mean, Cain was a husbandman, and he did offer the first fruits of the earth. Yeah, he did not offer the first fruits of the earth. He offered the fruit of the ground. And the church fathers say uh, that um, they, that, first of all, the intention of the heart was not right. That's the most important but thing. But what is he offering? He says, offer the fruits of the earth. The fruits of the earth. So I'm telling you, is that the church fathers are pretty consistent in saying that the problem with Cain was that, first of all, his heart was not in the right place, and therefore he did not offer the first fruits, but he offered maybe seconds or thirds, right? Didn't give God the first fruits, and therefore his offering was not accepted. But God says, if you do right, right, if you're in obedience and offer a good sacrifice, then it will be accepted, and he doesn't, he goes close to brother. Okay? That part I understand, but I'm asking about fruits. I mean, we're saying that there was no garden before Noah. I, I'm confused because well, the, the I, is this okay. thing. Right, I think that the, the fruits of the ground are simply that, the fruits of the ground. Okay? He gives what he can what he can harvest from the ground. Oh, all right. Okay? And and there is the aspect that the ground receives the curse, yeah. right? And now he's offering from what is cursed. And so, you know... Um, or that he's not using his talents. I mean, I was thinking for God's awesome. life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wait, wait, hold on, because you already asked a question. Um, back to chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. Yeah. It's pretty explicit that, that God had knowledge of good and evil. And man had free choice, but only knowledge of, didn't have knowledge of evil, so they ate the fruit. Mm -hmm. But when he did eat the fruit, 
the serpent was right. He did get now knowledge, like God, of good and evil. Right, he in some, you're right, because it says that he becomes like God, okay? I was actually thinking about this in the shower this morning, believe it or not, because somebody asked me a question, Anson Gross asked me a question a year ago, and never looked it up in the Fathers and what they say about this parallel of the knowledge and experience of God versus experience, because we want to say God, in a sense, experiences in himself evil, okay? So I'm going to answer your question, but not really answer it, because I don't really know the answer to that one. But um, that, that uh, actually, maybe I don't even have an answer. Ask me a question again. Well, I just find it interesting because it, it, after he gives him the leather, he says, the Lord God says, see, exclamation point. Right. Now, this man has become like one of us, right? The man has become like one of us, knowing what is good and what is bad, exclamation point. Right. Therefore, he must not be allowed to put his hand out. Well, the exclamation point, that's not in the original Hebrew, but that's okay. Right, but, but it seems like he's almost excited. You know, that's because you're, that's what you're a translator putting your explanation. No, but you're right. He has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And I, I, how is it that God knows evil in this sense of experience? And just off the cuff, I would say, well, in some sense, he has experience. He knows what it is experientially because of the fall of the angels. Okay, so he's, he sees it, knows the reality of it, and I'm not sure that's a decent answer either. So I think the best thing for me to do is to go, before you leave, I've got a commentary, and you can look it up, all right? Can we do that, Mark? Mm-hmm. Okay, one more question? Yes, two more questions, okay. Why is it that, if, if, why does he always start with the creation? There was evening, and then there was day, as opposed to there was day, and then there was evening. It's because the day... He broke the night with the light? I think so. For, for the Jews and also for the Christians, the day is counted from evening to evening, not from morning to morning or from morning to night. And that's why you can have a valid Sunday liturgy on Saturday evening. And that's why there's an outrage about those that have like Saturday mass on like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right? right? It really should be at sunset, right? Because the sunset is the beginning of the next day. In fact, first Vespers is the beginning of the liturgical day for Sunday, so, uh, you know, the next day. So, all right. What, what is the sin there with, you know, knowing the sun? So. Uh, you missed out on that one. I'm going to go back here. It says this is the generations of the heaven and earth. But it's kind of parallel with the generations of all the people that they talk about. Is there anything that you'd say about that? In chapter 2, verse 4, this is the last question I'm taking. So, right. These are the generations of the earth. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Adam. Like, the same yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good point, though. All right, I'll give you that. Let's finish it first. And face the cross. In Philia, spirit to Son, the Lord be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.